The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter 3. As we continue a five-week series through the book of Jonah. So this week, uh, we are on the fourth of that five-week series. So next week, we will conclude our study of the book of Jonah. But this morning, I want to talk about second chances. Second chances from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Uh, And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 5, and I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. We stand because we are reading the words of our King. I I don't know about you, but I was watching some of the coronation ceremony for the the King of England yesterday, and all the pomp and circumstance surrounding that, and every week we gather in the court of the King, the highest King, the King Jesus, the King who is the ultimate King, the King to whom every other King in history will bow. But He's not only the King, He's also the priest. He's also the prophet, because He speaks to us. And so we gladly hear his words. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's pray. Father, there is no bounds to the power of of your word. There is no limits. It is by your word that this universe exists. It is by your word that this universe continues to be sustained. And it is through your word that you call sinners out of their sin into your love and forgiveness. It is through your word that you make people who are blind able to see. It is through your word that you take people who are dead and you give them life. And Lord, we stand before your word this very moment. And we ask you, To do all of those things here today. To move according to your Spirit in a way that transforms us, that causes us to see, that births life out of death, all for your glory. Lord, we ask you to do this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
Well, a couple of years ago, my dad uh, sent me an article. And the headline of the article indicated that it was an article about a pastor of 30 plus years who came to the conclusion that he did not know Jesus. And so I clicked it because I'm a pastor and that's interesting and that's odd and that doesn't happen every day. And so I wanted to read this article and as soon as I clicked it, a picture popped up of the pastor that the article was about and I immediately recognized him as the pastor who baptized me. Now just so you know, I do not think that that invalidates my baptism. Baptism is something that the church does, and the pastor is just the representative of the church, representing the authority of Christ. But what an interesting story, certainly not the way you expect it to work. The agent of God's work, not even knowing God. There's a lady who comes here sometimes with Nikki's grandmother. She's a family friend. She's in her 70s. She was widowed over a decade ago. She grew up in the church. She went to church her whole life. She's led ministries in the church. And a couple of years ago, she came to the realization that she was not a Christian. She said, I did not know grace. I did not know Christ. I did not understand what it meant to be saved by grace. And I finally realized what it meant. And God saved me. And in her 70s, she was baptized and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. We've been studying the book of Jonah and Like those two stories, the book of Jonah is another unconventional kind of story. This is not how we expect it to go down. We are met immediately with a prophet of God. Someone that we would consider in vocational Christian ministry. But a prophet of God who is running from God. A prophet of God who does not want to do his job. A prophet of God who is willing to run away and rebel against the clear calling that God has given him. And even when he repents, as we saw last week, we're getting towards the end, and surprise, we're going to recognize that he's not all the way home yet. So even in in his repentance, it is a partial repentance. It's coming in stages. He is clearly in process. This is not the way you or I would have written the story. This is not the way we would draw it up. This is not a straight line of progress, the kind that we like to tell. And that bothers some of us. Now We've been trained by uh, Walt Disney to like nice, neat, little, tidy stories. Find resolution at the end. Jonah is not that kind of story. Jonah is messy. Jonah is a story about a man who is struggling to get it right and he keeps messing up. And we love our clear, neat, tidy little categories. We like to be able to easily tell that person is saved, that person is not saved. That person has repented, that person has not repented. We like formulas. We like step-by-step to-do lists. We like everything to be black and white and nothing to be gray. 
One of the things I have learned in my years in ministry is that we may prefer those categories, but those categories do not describe what life is really like. Things are always messier. How often does your life work in those formulaic ways? If you really think about it, would you consider your Christian journey a straight line of progress towards the goal? Church, aren't you glad that God doesn't follow a formula? Aren't you glad that you have a God who will bear with you through the gray, through the messiness, through the confusion of categories, through the mess-ups, through the stubbornness, through it all, and He's still waiting there at the end because He never left you. That's what we learn in the book of Jonah. There is no one-size-fits-all story. There is no simple, neat and tidy formula. The line isn't always straight. And our stories, too, don't fit the conventional pattern. In ministry, I have met people who would tell you, you know, I got to a certain age... And I, believe, I repented of my sins and I believed the gospel and I have never looked back since. And I praise God for those kinds of stories. But you know, I've met other people too. I've met some people who say, you know, I grew up in the church. I don't know when I believed the gospel. It must have been really early because my whole life I cannot remember a time where I wasn't trusting in Christ. And I say, praise God, what an amazing story. But you know, I've met other people who say, I have no idea when I believed the gospel. All I know is I believe it now. And I say, praise God for that story too. You don't have to know the date and the time. All that matters is do you believe right now? I've met some people who began to believe, believed the gospel, went a season, ran away, repented and came back, ran away again, repented and came back. And I say, praise God, we are praying that you never run away again. I praise God for those stories too. And sadly, I've also met people who we thought were running alongside of us and came and believed the gospel and they ran away and we're still praying for them to come back. But we know they can because we have a God of second chances. It's an important reminder as we get to the end of the book of Jonah because listen, if you don't have that expectation of God in your mind, you are going to really struggle to interpret Jonah's path as we get to the end of the book. If you are expecting a neat and tidy formula, you're not going to know what to do with the prophet Jonah because he is certainly not following any conventional pattern. Jonah repents of some of his sin, as we saw last week. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to recognize that there there is still a lot of darkness in his heart that the Lord is working in him to overcome. Jonah is a man in process. And that's the first point that I want us to look at this morning in verses 1 through the first part of verse 3, that we must trust the process Look at verse 1. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now I want to remind you of how we got here. The book of Jonah begins with God commanding Jonah to go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh. This very same command. It's a little bit different, but it's the same basic thing. And Jonah did not obey at that time. No, Jonah ran. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because Jonah did not like the people who lived there. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because Jonah was politically partisan to Israel. And he did not want to go proclaim grace to those sinners in Nineveh. He did not want to go, and so he ran. But God ran after him. And so though Jonah's running from God, God gets his attention in the middle of a raging storm. God does not stop pursuing him. And he brings him all the way to the brink of death. In fact, Jonah thinks his life is over because the sailors of the ship, when Jonah is running, realize that Jonah is running from a powerful God. They don't know this God, but they ultimately decide. And Jonah submits to being thrown overboard to calm the raging seas, which is exactly what happened. But then God interrupts again. As soon as we think the story's over, we recognize that God is still doing things. God is still up to something. Even the waters of the raging seas, even death, cannot stop God from accomplishing His purposes. And so God raises up a fish to swallow Him. Ultimately to rescue Him, to resurrect Him. And Jonah spends three days in the belly of a fish... And the way we would say that, where I, what's happening there where I'm from, is we'd say Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish getting right with God. That's what's happening there. He's praying. He's being restored. And then we get to this portion that we just read. Jonah now has been vomited out of the fish. And so the word of the Lord comes to him a second time with the same command. Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time, Jonah doesn't run. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah now is ready to obey God. That prayer... That prayer that Jonah prayed that we looked at last week was the kind of prayer that every one of us in this room has prayed before. God, I regret what I did. God, I repent of what I did. God, I receive your forgiveness. God, I resolve to do better next time. And the reality, church, is that we are able to pray that prayer only because we have a God who is merciful. Only because we have a God who is full of not only second chances, but third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And you just keep on counting them all of the times we have messed up. And God is still there saying, I will forgive you. I will be merciful to you. There's a specific song that, by an artist that Nikki and I like. 
And this line that, that came to my head this morning as I was thinking about this, he's got this line in the song where he says, if it weren't for second chances, we would all be alone. And of course, it's a relationship song. And it's true in that context. But oh, church, don't you know that if it weren't for second chances, we would all be alone. Cut off from the grace of God. We have a God of second chances. We have a God who reveals Himself as merciful and kind and patient and abounding in steadfast love over and over and over again. And, and Jesus tries to help us understand what, what it means and how loving God is. And at one point in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus is talking about how He's trying to get His people to understand how great the Father's love is. And he, and he turns to the people and he says, you fathers, you, you know how to give good gifts to your children, and you're evil. <laughs> and the comparison is, like, even you as wicked, sinful, selfish people, even you understand what it means to love your children. You know, when my teenagers throw their dirty dishes in the sink when the dishwasher's completely empty, I don't stop loving them. I've thought about it. No, I'm just kidding. Now, some of you have toddlers, and you know you, you tell your toddlers, put up your toys, or, or maybe your toddler throws a temper tantrum in public and embarrasses you again. You, you don't forsake them after that. You don't take them to the orphanage and drop them off. No, we know what it means to continue to love our children because they're, our, they're ours. Because we love them. We are committed to them, and Jesus uses that as a reference point to the Father's love. He says, don't you know that you have a God in heaven, a Father who is committed to you forever? And here's the, here's the thing I want to add to that. Because I think sometimes when we've made a mistake and we come back to God because we're repentant, I think often we come back and we have this sense of, God, I know you're tired of me right now. God, I know that you hesitate to do this, but because Jesus died on the cross for me, you have to. And so please just tolerate me for a little bit longer. Please, Lord, one more time, give me one more chance. I know that I've almost extinguished all of your goodwill, but God, would you please just one more time tolerate me in my mess. And church, let me tell you something. We don't have a God who tolerates us. We have a God who sees us coming and runs to meet us. He is not hesitant. He is not stingy with His mercy. He delights in pouring out His mercy upon us. He loves it. He loves giving second chances. He's revealed that to us over and over and over again. In His Word. After all this process, we encounter Jonah. And Jonah receives a second chance. Jonah now, after all the events that we've studied in the book of Jonah, after the storm and, and the fish and the prayer, after all of that has happened, Jonah now is at a place of, in his life where he can hear the command from God, and now he's going to respond the way he should have the first time. 
He's going to respond obediently. Jonah is a person in process. And so are you, and so am I. So we have to ask the question, what's changed? What's really changed for Jonah at this point? Why is he now willing to respond obediently to God when before he wasn't? And the only way that I know how to make sense of this is is to understand what has happened is that God has given Jonah grace. And listen to me, church. Grace begets obedience. Grace begets obedience. Psalm 130 verse 4. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness. There is grace with you because grace begets Obedience. When I encounter the grace of God, I respond in grateful obedience. Now here's the thing. You must not ever get that backwards. If you get that backwards, you are not trusting Christ. You are not dealing with God according to grace. Obedience does not beget grace. We don't come to God and say, oh God, look at my obedience. Look at everything I've done. Look at how I've striven. Look, look at how I've repented. Look at how I haven't missed church in four weeks. Look at how I put all my money in the offering plate. Look at how many times I've read my Bible. Look at how many times I've prayed. God, look at all that I've done. Will you please receive this? Will you now forgive me in light of everything I've done? Church, that's not how God works. He meets us as we are in our sin With His grace, He reconciles to us through the blood of Jesus because we have a Savior who died on the cross and bore the wrath of God. And it is the grace that comes first. It is only the grace that produces the kind of obedience that God wants. So that's where Jonah is. Jonah is in the process of of, of receiving this grace, of being changed by God. And, and, and here's the good news. If you, this morning, are here today, and you are in Jesus Christ, I need you to know that you are also in process too. You're not a finished product. You haven't arrived yet. The Bible is very clear. When we first encounter the grace of God, we begin the process of what the New Testament calls sanctification or being conformed into the image of Christ. That does not happen overnight. That is not a quick fix. That is not an experience on the mountaintop. That is a very long process. In fact, that is a lifelong process. It involves trials. It means that we are going to have to work in reliance on the grace of God for our whole lives to see it come to an end. And sometimes we don't like to hear that. To be honest with you, a lot of us don't like process. We want it now. We want a quick fix. Would you please just give me the book, Pastor, that I can read that will make all my problems go away? And that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. In fact, if you try to shortcut the process, you eliminate the possibility of ever trying to get there. Let me ask you this question. I want you to honestly consider it. If someone 
gave you a pill and told you, if you take this pill, it will instantly put you in physical shape, it will make you happy, and it will increase your energy, and you'll go to bed and be able to sleep every night. And the only side effect, the only side effect is that your moral character will remain stagnant for the duration of time that you take this pill. I wonder how many of us would line up for that one. My assumption is that the line would be really, 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 really long. The government would probably have to fund some more pharmaceutical companies to produce enough of those. That's not entirely hypothetical. A few years ago, I was on the internet and one of those infomercials came up on some website I was on and it was a really good one. It was really well done. It was this really ripped buff dude and he was like, I can get you in shape. And you know, he had all these qualifications and I don't usually fall for these things, but this one got me. I mean, it was like, if you take my supplement, if you take my diet and it's a really easy diet, it was really generous. It was one of those diets that's like, you can eat whatever you want, you know, just do it this way. And, and then there was a workout plan involved. You know, put your credit card information in right now. And this can all be yours. And you can look just like me. And it was really smart because it had all the testimonials. And they were all people. How do they know to get people that are like my age? They're always watching you. Don't let that scare you. That's just the reality. And so it was completely catered to me in church. I bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. I don't remember. It was like 50 or $60. I was in. I wanted to be in shape. I wanted the quick fix. I remember it was last year we were cleaning out our cabinets, and we had to throw away those expired supplements. I didn't even finish it. Because what, really, what it really takes for me to get in shape, and not everybody's the same in this, but for me personally, it requires character. It requires things like self-control and discipline and perseverance. If I can just not eat that bowl of bluebell every single night before I go to bed, if I can continue to, to work out at the pace I need to, then I'll be able to stay in shape. And if I, if I buy the quick fix, if I opt for that... That is really the enemy of my genuine growth because certainly there are probably pills and supplements that will help me get in shape. But at the end of the day, what I really need is to grow in character. I need to grow in these qualities in Christ. I need to embrace the process. And church, I tell you this to encourage you this morning. Jonah's in process. You're in process too. By faith. You have got to continue to believe that God is working His promise in you and He is not going to stop until you're the finished product. And sometimes, listen to me, sometimes all we have is faith to go on there. Because there are times in our lives where we look in the mirror and we say, I don't see any change right now. I see the same old struggles, the same old problems, the same old hindrances. And we go to God's Word and we say, but you say you're conforming me into the image of your Son. 
I'm going to choose to believe your promise. I'm going to choose to believe that that's indeed what you're doing. And when we fail, when we make mistakes, we've got to recognize that just as Jonah failed, God doesn't waste that. God uses even our failures to bring us back around like He has for Jonah so that we can receive His command the second time and maybe this time we'll respond the way we're supposed to. But church, never forget that you will never exhaust His mercy. He's the God of second chances. But here's the second thing I want us to see. The rest of the passage, the second part of verse 3, all the way to the end, verse 10. Prepare for surprise. Prepare for surprise. I'm just going to go through this really quickly, and I want you to see what happens. So Jonah says, okay, he's going to go. And we get to the second part of verse 3, and it tells us about Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, which means that it would have taken Jonah three days to get from one end of the city to the other end of the city. But Jonah didn't make it that far. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, so roughly about one-third of the way, and he called out, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I think that we have to recognize that this is like the Cliff Notes version of the story. I'm sure that there was more to Jonah's message than just this. But this was the main thing that God had called him to call out to them for. He wanted them to know that because of their wickedness, they were about to be judged. And so Jonah faithfully proclaims that message. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. So imagine, like, you know, when you have like a potato sack race, that real rough that, that's kind of what sackcloth was. It's, it's the same thing. It's painful to wear. Can you imagine wearing that? And you would put on sackcloth to show that you're, that you're real, that you mean it, that you're willing to deny yourself. And so they fast and they put on sackcloth. And, and notice that it's the whole entire city, from the greatest of them to the least of them, this is public repentance. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, even the king. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. We're not even going to feed our animals. Everybody. Everybody's fasting. Every living being. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And he doesn't use God's covenant name here. And, and there's scholars who disagree as to what exactly is going on. And I can't tell you the extent of this repentance I can't stand here and say, well, I know for a fact that these people were saved through Christ at this moment because that's, the text doesn't go that far. But the text clearly tells us that God accepts their repentance and responds accordingly. And we see that as we keep going. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is the problem of Nineveh. This is an evil society. This is a violent society. They were renowned for their wickedness, for their violence. 
And that is exactly what they're turning from. And look at what the king says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Prepare for surprise. I can tell you that I don't think Jonah was prepared for this response. I do not think Jonah knew that this is how it was going to go down exactly like this. Three days across, and then one day into this journey, he preaches the message God gave him. And when I was a kid, cover your kids' ears up at this point, I used to play with matches. Don't ever do that. I'm going to tell you why. And we were in the woods, and I was, it was in the middle of Alabama. And it was dry, and it had not rained for a while. And I remember this big grassy hill. And me and my friends were like, you know, let's burn something. And so we lit a match and dropped it on this grassy hill. And our intention was to like watch, see what would happen, and put it out. But as soon as that match hit that hill, it was like, and it was the scariest thing in the history of the world to me at that moment in my life. I ran. I ran home, and I heard sirens, and nothing, it didn't make the news, so apparently it got put out, and I'm very thankful for that. (laughs) But I imagine... That this is, that's the same effect. Like Jonah gets one day in to a three-day journey and he begins to preach the word of God. Just a little spark, just a little match. I'm sure he might have thought, you know, maybe, maybe this person will repent. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just going to be faithful to God. But it is like dropping a match on dry grass. It goes from person to person to person to person, from the least to the greatest, all the way to the king over the entire region of the city, and there are sinners repenting. Total repentance. It says there that, it, that they believe the word. That's really important. They believe the message. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. There is faith and there is repentance. And we see what the elements of repentance are. And this is really important because this is really confusing for us sometimes. I think sometimes we think if I just feel bad for what I did, then that's repentance. If I confess it and feel bad about it, I've repented. But I want you to notice that that's not repentance. So there's, there's four things that we see here, that, that, and all of them need to be present for repentance to be present. The first thing we see is illumination. How, how, is, how are things illuminated? The Word of God. The light of God's Word shines upon our lives, upon our world, and we begin to realize that we are wrong. You are have done wrong. You are a sinner. We realize that God's word is true even if it makes me a liar. Isn't that true, church? Even if I'm a liar, God's word is true. And I'm not repentant until I'm willing to admit that, until I'm at a place of humility where I say, God, your word must reign over mine. 
over my reputation even. So we see the illumination. The second thing we see is sorrow for sin. We recognize that our sin is not just against an impersonal law book. Our sin is against the God of the universe, the God who made us, the God who desires relationship with us. And you see that here. They mourn. They put on sackcloth. They fast. The third element is confession. And you see that in verse 8 when the king speaks. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He's agreeing now. I am confessing our sin. We have been evil. We have been violent. He doesn't even have to spell it out. Everyone knew how wicked the Assyrians were. And then here's the last one. And this is, the, this is where we often stop. We usually don't get here. But let man, verse 8, and every and beast be covered with sackcloth and let him call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There is a turning from the sin. There is a turning away. There is a demonstrative change. There is a, I am no longer going to do the things that I am repenting of. I am turning my back on that, and I am turning towards the God that I am going to follow. No repentance is ever complete unless you get to that fourth stage. Why? Why is that? And why do we often not get there? You want me to tell you what? My theory? My theory is that we often don't get to that fourth stage because that fourth stage is the public stage. And we don't want other people to know what we've done. And that fourth stage requires us to be public about what we've done and to be public about our repentance. And so as long as we can keep it private between us and God, God, I feel really bad about it. God, I won't do it again, I promise. God, I thank you for your grace and mercy. But we don't ever want to get to that part where we go to other people in the church and say, this is what I did, I need you to hold me accountable, I don't ever want to do it again. This is public repentance. The whole town knows what's going on. I want to shift back. I want to look at Jonah here. What makes a successful ministry? I want you to think about that question this morning as we wrap up. Here's Jonah, the reluctant prophet, preaching a message that We're going to find out in the next chapter he's half-heartedly believing in. Because if I asked you what makes a successful minister, I'm sure that we would come up with a list. I mean, a successful minister needs to have good leadership skills. A successful minister needs to be able to communicate clearly. A successful minister might need to, to have a good intellect. and needs to have the power of persuasion. and needs to be able to preach a good sermon. But when we read about Jonah, when we read this specific account, we recognize that there's no mention of his gifts at all, and he was reluctant from the outset to even obey God. And so why is this happening? 
Why are these people responding to God's word in church? Listen to me. It has nothing to do with Jonah. It has everything to do with Jonah's God. This is the power of the word of God unleashed. Listen. We may be able to draw a huge crowd because we have gifted individuals leading the way, but it is only the Word of God who can transform their hearts. It is only through Jesus. It is only the Gospel that can change them. And so it doesn't matter how big the crowd is. It doesn't matter how gifted the people on this stage are. If we are not proclaiming the unadulterated, pure Word of God, if we are not screaming the power of the Gospel, there is no potential for everlasting transformation and salvation. It's not going to happen. Jonah preaches the Word and the Word takes control. It's the only explanation for this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Mercy. It is God's prerogative to show mercy. Violent, wicked people. God says, I am free to show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will forgive who I desire to forgive. And in this context, God forgives. And in the context of the Old Testament, we read this and and maybe it doesn't all make sense. Like, How can God say that He is just? And how can He say that He is merciful at the same time? If God is just, doesn't He need to punish these wicked people? But then again and again, He keeps not punishing us for what we deserve. And so we keep reading in the Bible, and it's just a few pages later at this point, we get to the answer to the question. We get to the cross of Christ where justice and mercy meet. Because it is in Christ that God pours out His judgment upon sin so that He can forgive all who are trusting Him. This tension is resolved in the cross of Christ. And church, as we close this morning, let me simply say this. Don't put God in a box. Don't presume to know with certainty what God is doing. You can ask the staff. There's been times in the last couple years where I've said things like, you know, I don't think that'll ever happen. (laughs) You know, they'll ask me a question about ministry or certain outcomes we're hoping for. And if you just look at it from one perspective, it just seems like that'll never happen. That's not the way it works. And let me tell you something. If our confidence is in human beings, then that's true. If our confidence is in human beings, then then we can go around using our logic and drawing the conclusion that this will never happen and that'll never happen. But what we've got to remember is that our confidence is not in human beings. Our confidence is in the powerful God of this universe. And the things that we think will never happen, God laughs as He makes that thing happen. I have seen repentance from people that I never thought I'd see repentance from. I have seen God change people's lives. I have seen it and so have you. Don't ever doubt the powerful mercy of God. Let's pray together.